St. Anne's Orthodox Church presents In Heaven and on Earth, recordings of the classes, talks, and retreats given by Father Daniel Greeson, priest at St. Anne's Orthodox Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Here is Father Daniel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who loves mankind with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of your gospel teachings, and plant also in us the fear of your blessed commandments that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as well pleasing unto thee. For you are the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God, and to you do we ascribe glory together with your Father, who is from everlasting in your all holy good and life-creating spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. So last week we um, discussed the antiphons and the small entrance. Uh, and this week, we're, we're really not going to get away uh, any further than this page of the liturgy, because I w- I'm trying to use the, the liturgy to hang uh, themes or topics on uh, about orthodoxy in general. So the liturgy obviously presumes right that uh, you uh, are an orthodox Christian, probably understand orthodoxy. So... It's never, it's, you know, we don't stop the service and then explain what's going on. The service happens, and you either pick it up through study, through osmosis, through classes like this, uh, etc. So last week, uh, we discussed the antiphons, the psalms that begin, um, basically frame the beginning of the service uh, up into the small entrance. Uh, What happens at the small entrance, just to kind of warm us up a little bit? While the choir warms up. (laughs) What is the small entrance? Why do we call it the small entrance? Anyone can guess. It's an entrance with the gospel, right? The priest comes out with all of the altar boys. If there's a a deacon, the deacon will have the the gospel. Uh, It is then raised up. Uh, after the priest uh, blesses the entrance because the doors are open, right? Uh, this is the first time the doors have been open since uh, the beginning with the blessed is the kingdom. Um, this is, of course, the Russian tradition. There's other traditions that will leave the doors open the entire time. But uh, you say, blessed is the entrance uh, of your saints, always now and ever and into ages of ages, amen. And then basically the Beatitudes will end singing. And then the priest says wisdom, either let us attend, wisdom, stand upright. Uh, And then what is sung in response to that? Come, let us worship and fall down before Christ. On Sundays, if that's what you're used to, uh, coming to church, it will say who rose from the dead. If it's during the week, it'll say who's wonderful in his saints. And if it's a feast of Theotokos, it'll say, Fall down before Christ to the prayers of Theotokos, O Son of God, save us who sing to you. Alleluia. I want us to um, basically stop here and kind of take uh, in and incorporate actually where we've been, because we have been uh, in Exodus uh, for the beginning of the classes and talking about the law and the tabernacle and the worship that was given on Mount Sinai. Uh, And now I want us to actually go to the uh, book that provides the most commentary, the most speculation, 
the most uh, craziness. Uh, can you imagine which book of the Bible that I'm talking about? What book provides the most speculation? There's movies, there's series, all sorts of stuff. The book of Revelation, the Apocalypse of John. Uh, and I want us to just look at the Apocalypse of John. Uh, we're not going to be getting into nitty gritty because there's a whole lot there. But I want us to look at the book of Revelation um, because it also, I think if you were actually to experience orthodoxy, um, studying orthodoxy, uh, being an orthodox church, and then when you pick up, the, pick up the book of Revelation, the book is a very different book than maybe if you picked it up looking for like a particular code to the end of the world uh, or something like that, which is not the way that the orthodox um, read this book. Uh, what, what are your impressions of the book of Revelation? First three chapters are pretty intelligible. The first three chapters are intelligible, and then after that, good luck. Anything else? Has anyone r tried to read the book of Revelation? Yeah? Successfully? <laughs> Interesting. There's parts in there where it's, you know, these great scenes. Uh, it's really dramatic. It would make, well, I'm sure some Christian uh, organization has made some pretty intense movies out of it. Um, but the way, if you were to read the book of Revelation in the context uh, of the way that we worship, suddenly the book uh, has a lot of different uh, dimensions than a kind of a code book trying to figure out who the beast that comes out of the sea is. Is that Russia? Is that Iran? And depending on the decade, even though it seems like Russia is always the beast uh, for our foreign policy, and Iran has been for 40, 50 years. Uh, but instead of kind of trying to constantly update, um, the book of Revelation gives us um, really a kind of, uh, and I'll clarify some of these words, apocalyptic, uh, vision of the throne room of God and the way in which uh, God's ways for the world uh, we have the righteous you have these great battles that are occurring uh, are all kind of um, images drawn from the Old Testament and from the prophets uh, and the themes that are drawn from there uh, and then basically um, this is all kind of a revelation given to John um, and I want us to actually to start in chapter 4 I know, Mike, I told you chapter 7, but I remember that I wanted to go to 4 first. Um, and the reason, actually, I want to go to the very beginning. Let's see here. Uh, in chapter 1 and verse 10, we have John on the island of Patmos. And to this day, you can actually go to a cave on the island of Patmos because it has an Orthodox church there. Uh, you can actually, I believe there's a brotherhood there on Patmos of monastics uh, there in the cave where, and if you actually look at a lot of traditional icons of John, uh, the theologian, uh, you have him in a cave receiving revelation while somebody else is writing down the revelation. Uh, and it says in verse 10 of chapter one, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And down in verse 12, he turns to see a voice that was speaking with him. And there stood in the midst of lampstands, 
one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And it goes on to continue to describe this vision that he has. And the, the main part that I would like us to consider is that John says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What is the Lord's day? What is that kind of a, um, what does that symbolize? What does that point to? What do we say the Lord's day is? Sunday, the day of resurrection, right? The theme throughout from Saturday evening at Great Vespers, and if we had a vigil, it would be all resurrectional. Even down as we see here in this hymn as we're entering into the altar, come let us worship and fall down before Christ who rose from the dead. Uh, and then this, the hymns that we start singing after this, uh, they start with resurrectional hymns, right? We have the tone of the week, the resurrectional Traparia, and eventually we'll sing the resurrectional Kentuckian. Um the whole vision that John has uh, is a kind of a, a liturgical uh, throne room scene of God. If we move over to chapter 4 and verse 1. Let me actually pull this up for you instead of... After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. And immediately I was in the Spirit. Again, he's in the Spirit like he was on the Lord's day. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. And seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was a lion, the second was a calf, the third was a flying eagle. And then the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Just go ahead and finish the chapter. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. A lot of fascinating stuff going on in this reading. What are some things that sound familiar, though? Holy, holy, holy sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. We call that Shasayan, right? We'll get there in just a minute. What else sounds familiar? Think back to Exodus. Sea of glass. The sea of glass. Why does the sea of glass sound familiar? When Moses was going up on Sinai. When Moses sat down to have the meal... 
with the elders, with God. God was enthroned, or it was like a sea of glass, and they saw the vision of God enthroned. This is pulling upon, uh, referencing back to this vision that Moses had. Uh, this will then continue. I mean, we can think of some other theophanies. Isaiah has a theophany in the throne room of God. Uh, Ezekiel has a theophany. This Ezekiel is where you're going to get the four living creatures, uh, the lion, the calf, uh, the man, and an eagle. And then the four living creatures are like the cherubim or the cherubim, um, who have the six wings. This also sounds right. We already it it, all, it already sounds liturgical, right? Uh, what in the anaphora we are talking about this exact kind of vision, right? You are. We ascribe all of these things to God the Father. We thank Him for creating us. Uh, And then we talk about the fact that he is enthroned and that around him fly these living creatures that have the six wings, uh, but they sing the triumphant hymn, shouting, proclaiming, and saying, right? And then you hear the ding, ding, ding. Do you all know what the ding, ding, ding is? Have you ever heard, have you heard the ding, ding, ding? So the ding, ding, (laughs) the ding, ding, ding. This is a very technical term. (laughs) Uh, The asterisk is what is over the pattern that holds the lamb. Uh, And on the lamb, there's also a a little uh, uh, piece of bread that is for the Theotokos. Then you have the nine ranks of saints and you have the living and the dead. They're all on the discos, right? Over and above that, before, uh, because all of that is covered before the beginning of the service, um, when you are covering it with, you basically say the, say the star came and stood over the place where the child was. So there's a, a um, s- how shall I say, basically a symbol that this, uh, we call it asterisk, right? Because uh, an asterisk is a star, that the star or this uh, little device that holds up the veil that goes over the discos or the pattern, uh, we call it a star. So the star becomes then a reference to like the nativity, the stars leading to the worship of the Son of God. Um, the star is then put on, and then when the star comes off of the gifts after the great entrance, the veils have all uh, been taken off. That uh, ding, ding, ding is also kind of, uh, there's a practical reason for it. Uh, if you have little crumbs of bread, they like to stick to things, right? Especially if they're supposed to be offered or to be commemorated. We have a... Uh, an Orthodox priest is very particular about the pieces of bread because, well, they're sanctified uh, bread. They're part of the offering. Uh, and so the, hitting that is one way to make sure that you don't have any loose particles coming off. Another way, it's a kind of the sound of the angelic hosts. So it's just kind of become one of those things that we do. Um, there's a lot of little movements in the liturgy that are um, that get this, these symbols attached to them, but they also serve really practical uh, purposes. Is there anything else about this particular scene? The one thing that I would like us, and as we've kind of talked about, is the theme of the kingdom that we began with the Old Testament, run through the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, even see uh, embodied in the Beatitudes, uh, but that this whole scene is done in a throne room, and who has the throne room? A king. So this is, you're entering into the very presence of the creator, God, the Lord, 
And it's here that um, I want us to be able to have this kind of background. So then when we ask questions like, why do you all pray to Mary? Why do you invoke the saints? Uh, we've already established the idea of the kingdom that goes from the Old Testament, New Testament, that we are part of that kingdom. Uh, this kingdom is alive and living. Those who have even passed on are alive in Christ. And it's to the book of Revelation uh, that we can see all of the kind of fulfillment of what began uh, back at Sinai, where God wants uh, his people to be kings and priests. Uh, we see in the book of Revelation uh, the kind of fulfillment of Christ coming, Christ um, being enthroned. And then also we'll see as we move through the book of Revelation, uh, as we can already see here, and that we'll get a little bit of an addition here, um, that around the throne are... Who is standing around the throne besides all the, the angels flying around? The 24 elders. Uh, what do you all think? What are 24 elders? They're men, aren't they? They're men, yes. I mean, I could be totally wrong, but Go for it. the number 24 just makes me think of the 12 patriarchs and 12 apostles. So one of the things about the polyvalency uh, ambiguity of these is that you can do, that sounds like a perfectly uh, legitimate interpretation to me, uh, but it's also, think about, well, what's another word for elder? Presbyter. Presbyter. So what do you have in an Orthodox church service around the throne? Well, what is the throne in the Orthodox church? It's actually in Russian. If, if we all spoke Russian, you might actually be able, the, the Russians refer to the altar as the throne of God. So you have 24 elders, the kind of fulfillment, I'm, I think Micah's interpretation of suggesting the 12 uh, leaders of the tribes of Israel and then the 12 apostles, uh, they're clothed in white. Why are they clothed in white? Because it represents purity. Represents purity. This is also historically uh, and traditionally, and you still see it most of the time, not all the time, but uh, what happens when somebody gets baptized? They get clothed in white. The priests, uh, what he is wearing almost always, and there are some exceptions to this, but uh, if you ever see me wearing, when I'm fully vested for liturgy, I have, uh, no matter what color kind of I'm a, uh, outer garments, I'm trying to not use all the Greek words, the Philonian, right? The big thing that you wear, uh, kind of drapey thing. Um, underneath of that, there is a white uh, garment that is worn because that's a baptismal garment. And so the priest is always putting on a kind of baptismal garment. Historically, in the Ethiopic church, you can go to this day and they will all dress in white uh, when they go to church because it's a representation of their baptism. Uh, what's with the crowns of gold on their heads? Any ideas? Well, I mean, Are they kings? Yeah, I mean, yeah. the opening of Revelation says... Uh, Christ has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, something like that. Which echoes the book of Exodus. You are getting here, and to this day, uh, there are priests who are awarded crowns right now. Bishop, you're probably only going to encounter bishops wearing crowns uh, or mitres, uh, but there are really old priests, and by really old as in like wizened and 
experienced priests who the last thing, and there's always a kind of joke amongst them, once you get the mitre, you're probably going to die pretty soon uh, because that means that you've had a really uh, long and fruitful ministry. Um, So you can see all of the things uh, that the Orthodox Church uh, wears even uh, is tied up. You can see this kind of liturgical uh, vision going on uh, that's all tied up with the prophetic literature uh, and the Old Testament. You also get the throne preceding lightnings, thunderings, and voices. What? Why? Why that? It seems a pretty clear allusion to Exodus because, like Mount Sinai, I mean, yeah, Mount Sinai had like thunder, like peals of thunder and the sound of trumpets and smoke and all that. Mm-hmm. Why? So yes, but why? What is that about? What does that get across? Do you ever jump when there's a loud noise? That scares you. Yeah. I, I, th- I think there is an element here of lightning, thunderings, and voices because we're talking about something serious. <laughs> we're talking about something weighty. We're talking about something. We're entering into the very presence uh, of God. Uh, the, the 24 elders... Uh, we also see when uh, they, this is exactly how they stand around the throne of the altar. The, the priest will stand around and they will also bow uh, and they will take off their crowns. There's multiple times throughout the liturgy that we do this. Um, the, this gathering of the elders uh, gives us a kind of concrete image. Uh, it's nice having more than one priest here at St. Anne's. Uh, and on Sunday, is it this Sunday? I think it's this Sunday. We'll have another priest here too. So uh, you can even see more. And when we have a hierarchical liturgy uh, in January around the weekend of Theophany, uh, you'll be able to see the bishop surrounded by uh, the presbyters. And you get this concrete idea of the celestial kind of court imagery that runs throughout uh, the prophetic literature and then in the book of Revelation. Uh, vested in priestly attire, they fall down in worship. They sing hymns. They, off, they also, as you get in the book of Revelation, the incense is offered to God as a symbol of the prayers of the saints. Uh, and then they also proclaim the mighty acts of salvation. Let's see here. Let's move to Revelation 7 real quick. Because this will give us... There's more people present in the throne room. So this is just an aside here. Uh, When you are reading Bibles and they say things like a multitude from the great tribulation, verse 9, always remind yourself that that is not inspired text. <laughs> These are things that are given to try and help you. Uh, so sometimes, especially with something like the book of Revelation, uh, part of the development of kind of fundamentalist Christianity in North America was all tied up because the Schofield Bible uh, had a kind of, you know, you read the Bible and then it gives you all these notes and says, this is how you're supposed to interpret it. And then that creates hosts of people Uh, who think this is what the Bible says, but what it is is uh, it's commentary telling you that this is what the text means. Uh, So be careful sometimes about how you 
uh, we'll, we'll hit this again of just how we think about the text. There would have been no, um, no periods. <laughs> there would have been no exclamation points, question marks. Greek just keeps going. Uh, so you have to be aware of some of the, uh, the pitfalls of using some of the uh, modern Bibles. After these things were in uh, Revelation 7, and mostly I'm reading these things out loud because we're recording. Uh, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worship God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You can already maybe make a note to yourself that there's times with prayers in the Orthodox Church, you're like, we give a lot of superlatives to God. Well, Scripture does too. (laughs) One of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these? Me being John. Who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great, come out of the great tribulation, washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall never hunger any more, nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. The Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Who are the ones who've gone through the great tribulation? Any ideas? In the early church, uh, very quickly, you have uh, martyrs. You have those who have died for the faith. In the previous chapter, uh, in verse 9, you have when one of the seals is broken under the altar. uh, We'll come back to that in just a second. Under the altar were the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. And what do they say? And they cry out. Uh, with a loud voice saying, and this is uh, chapter 6, verse 10, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The martyrs here are the ones who have been slain for the word of God, uh, and they are gathered around the throne. When we uh, enter into the altar after the small entrance, you have hymns for the feast. So, or for Sunday, you're always going to have resurrectional. But there's always uh, a cycle of, outside of that kind of weekly cycle of services, there's always going to be a saint appointed for that day. The only time saints usually kind of, uh, you won't hear about them is on great feast for our Lord or for the Theotokos. We don't typically say uh, who the saint is because it overshadows that. Um, But the Menaean, which is uh, the cycle of services for the daily uh, offices for the saints, We'll, we'll always sing songs and hymns to them. Because as we're entering into the throne room uh, of God, 
Uh, and as we're all kind of entering into, right, as the priest has said, blessed is the entrance of thy saints, we are all, in a sense, now entering into and going up to the throne. And who is around the throne? But those who have been made, their robes made white in the blood of the Lamb. The martyrs, especially. Uh, today, in the Orthodox Church, remember I said to come back to, that under the altar is where these souls cry out. In the Orthodox Church, uh, when you have a, a temple that's finally been consecrated in an Orthodox Church, that means for as long as God wills it, it will be an Orthodox Church. Um, there is, within the altar, they will wax in uh, relics of saints. And this goes back to the fact that the early church, wherever their martyrs were martyred, they would go to that place where the martyr was martyred or where the martyr was buried, and they would have, they would do a liturgy. They would have a Eucharistic service over the grave of the martyr. So you already have in the book of Revelation these fascinating kind of uh, reflections of the, the early liturgical piety of the church, that the martyrs are considered to be around the throne, uh, that we are with them when we worship. Um, uh, we even see this actually in the petition uh, that we say uh, later. For We pray for all believers who have departed this life before us, who here in all the world lie asleep in the Lord. Um, we join the ranks of the martyrs when we come to the table uh, on Sunday morning. So we, of course, then churn to them. We pray to them. We sing hymns about uh, the feats and the things that they did. Uh, and by saying they did it, that God allowed them, that empowered them to be able to... Uh, I mean, this evening we had the uh, Traparian for Saints... Uh, Evlampius and Evlampia. Evlampia? Evlampia. I can't remember. Evlampia? Evlampia. All right. Ev. Yes. Oh, yes. Ev. I got my Greek down enough to know I see EU in English. That means Ev. At least that's how modern Greeks do it. You get the basic traparia for martyrs, which is the traparia. Unless they are particularly special martyrs, they all get the same uh, chaparia uh, that they've cast down their enemies uh, through God, empowering them. Does anyone have any questions? Now, I'm talking a lot, but I also have a lot of material. When you're coming at... Um, Worship in the Orthodox Church, uh, you've probably all gone through the experience of that worship in the Orthodox Church it just functions in such a different register than most uh, Christian bodies in worship. Um, we have a kind of 360 view. You know, I've said that the Great Litany kind of covers everything in a sense that we've prayed for the entire world. Uh, for all kind of pressing matters. Uh, but the Orthodox Church always has a memory. The Orthodox Church never forgets those um, that have died for the faith. Uh, remembers even there's a Sunday specifically dedicated uh, to the All Saints. Uh, and that's specifically in the hymnody for saints that we don't know who are saints. Uh, because they've either God hid them in their, their holiness or because they died in, you know, 
situations to where nobody would know who they were in the first place. Um, but the, the Orthodox Church has a very much a all of our worship, even down to our private prayers, all comes back to this kind of vision. Uh, and it's exactly why we have the icons that we're surrounded uh, with, because the throne room is surrounded with the cloud of witnesses, uh, the book of Hebrews. Uh, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, and so in our worship, uh, we're always surrounded uh, by our friends and the friends of God. And so we ask them for their, their help uh, and their prayer uh, and especially uh, we look to uh, the mother of God who comes up a lot. You probably already realized and at the end of every litany we always talk about the Theotokos. Um, was anyone put off by how much when you first came to the Orthodox Church how much talked about Mary or just like why or did you just never even cross your mind? I got that out of my system when I <laughs> right. If you go through the if you if you go Catholic first and then become Orthodox, then yeah, you 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 get pretty used to Holy Mother Mary pray for us and the and the hour of our death, etc. My kids go to a Roman Catholic parochial school, so they will sprinkle in uh, Roman prayers from time to time. Um, I was had familiarized myself enough, I guess. Uh -huh. Coming from like a Anglican background, there's a little bit of that, you know. But uh, in the Anglican Church and the uh, Episcopal, is there much of references made to the Mother of God, or is in it just like a general liturgy, like maybe once or twice? Once or twice. Yeah. Um, so Orthodox are kind of on overkill then, compared yeah. in comparison. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like we can't mention something without, without saying yeah, the Theosophos. Yeah. But. Uh, it, it, you know, it doesn't bother me, you know, right. or anything like that. Didn't didn't bother me coming in, you know, but it is uh, a lot more. <laughs> yes. The only thing that took getting used to for me was holy, uh, like most holy Theotokos us. Right. That particular phrase. Right. Yeah, that is usually. Oh. Uh, uh, Sorry, I'm trying to wrap my head around here. Um, the most holy Theotokos save us. Well, so how did you reconcile yourself to that or wrap oh, your head around it? Well, because like at the end of James 5, like simply by praying for someone, you saved their soul. So like if you can do that, then... Then why you, can't? Not, like, well, like not you yourself, but right. God working through you. And why couldn't God do that through the Virgin Mary? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I remember when, because that's one of those things when you're coming from the Protestant background, it's that kind of glaring thing because there's not really any way, you know, the dormition of Theotokos happens once a year. So in some ways, <laughs> you don't really get, that doesn't get put in your face as a like challenge until that to like August, uh, right? And then so maybe you can come like, oh, I don't know about this and then kind of let it get, you know, go. Um, uh, which is, I think it's okay to struggle with these things and take a little bit of time to struggle with them. Uh, I'm still learning, even some of the stuff that I'll be presenting in just a minute is some new uh, angles or aspects of things that I had not really um, encountered before. Uh, thankfully, because of YouTube, podcasts, when I became Orthodox, has it been 12 or 13 years ago? 
there wasn't much material around. So when I was reading about like Mary, I had to rely on mostly Roman Catholic apologetic material, and about 95% of that, to be honest, is not very good uh, because it's it, it expects you to get one answer and then go okay <laughs> instead of like wait a second. <laughs> There's so many first principles here that we're just missing each other uh, instead of like getting down into the biblical text uh, where everyone just argues about what, it, what does it mean that Joseph uh, did, uh, had, did not have relations with her until and then everything is this debate or what does it mean to be full of grace and then everything is apologetic material about that. Um, it's kind of like, uh, like St. Anselm, like reading St. Anselm in the Western... <laughs> sort of sense or even How so? Summa, you know. Oh, okay. It's right. Like well, you, you do, like so, that. yeah, and then you also have to, <laughs> if you really want to get an answer to some of the things, then you have to, you do have to go back to the medieval, like in Catholic circles, because I always found the apologetics was just paper thin and it didn't really. So, a lot of like uh, the work of Yaroslav Pelikan, do you mm -hmm. all know who? Uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, uh, if you ever come across it, you're going through McKay's, uh, which sometimes if you go through McKay's, you can find uh, Orthodox books for not a bad price there, um, which is somebody's loss in your gain. Um, but you can find Yaroslav Pelikan. He was a Lutheran, uh, became Orthodox uh, in his later years, but he was one of kind of great 20th century um, theologians who just wrote a ton. Uh, he has one book, Jesus Through the Centuries, and this is probably one of the books that you could probably easily find uh, through Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Amazon allows you to find anything these days, but um, Jesus Through the Centuries and Mary Through the Centuries is very uh, helpful to kind of get a 30,000-foot view through the first few centuries and moving forward. That's somebody who is very aware, because you can go through this five-volume history of do doctrines, and you're talking about you are not in the kiddie pool anymore. <laughs> uh, so if you ever want to get out of the kiddie pool, Pelican can help guide you in some ways um, into the depth of the tradition and the debates. And especially, you know, you want to know more about Augustinian uh, predestination, all this stuff. He will give you a thread in order to understand it in a way that's not a Wikipedia article that you're just kind of left going, okay, I just hit the surface. Um, but the, I, w I would be remiss to not mention the works of, and I probably said and invoked his name a few times already, it's Father Thomas Hopko. Because Father Thomas Hopko, because of podcasts on Ancient Faith Radio, you can go on and listen to his talks that were given actually in a church uh, down in Mississippi in the Diocese of the South. Uh, I believe it's one or maybe two or three talks on the Book of Revelation. Uh, extremely helpful. He has a whole series on the Theotokos, which are extremely helpful. Uh, he has a whole series on, I mean, almost anything, the, the Divine Liturgy, even though he doesn't actually get through it <laughs> uh, because he uh, reposed before he was able to finish it. But if you want to go into depth, uh, Hopko can help you out there. So in the last 15 minutes, I want us to talk about, uh, as you may, uh, something uh, that appears later in the book of Revelation that is also a fascinating, and you can see this especially in Western art. Uh, if you like medieval Renaissance Western art, 
and you've ever wondered why does the mother of God, why does Mary have a moon? Why is she standing on a moon? It's almost like she's like uh, poised on this moon. Well, the text for this uh, comes here from the book of Revelation. Uh, before we read the, the relevant verses, I want us to get a kind of uh, background here. Um, there are seven seals and seven angels in the vision that John had. And in one of these visions, you have a woman clothed with a sun and uh, the dragon. And you have uh, Michael, the archangel, and this battle that occurs uh, and earlier in Revelation 11, before we encounter this woman clothed with the sun, uh, we have a kind of retelling. Uh, I'm not going to go. I'm just kind of going to give you an overview. Uh, in chapter 11 of Revelation, you have seven trumpet blasts and uh, seven uh, seals. And you have, let's see here. Uh a city that then uh, falls apart after these seven trumpet blasts. What city falls apart after seven trumpet blasts? Jericho. So you have this fascinating setup where uh, it seems like, um, and I think in, here in 11, it's basically talking about Jerusalem in the same kind of prophetic language of uh, when you want to say that a city is an awful city, you want to say it's like Sodom, right? That's like the pinnacle in the Old Testament of like the evil city that God destroys, rains down fire upon. Uh, so Jerusalem has become uh, like Sodom and even Egypt. That's pretty bad um, in the Old Testament. Uh, and then you have uh, the destruction of this city through seven trumpet blasts and seven days. What... Um, in Jericho, with these seven uh, days of uh, going around the walls of Jericho, uh, what would have been in that procession? Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Where would the Ark of the Covenant have been? The front. Because the, the priests would have been behind the Ark of the Covenant. Because when Israel went into war, who did they have going out in front of them? The Ark of the Covenant. They always went into war. And so this is also, if you can think about our processions in the Orthodox Church, uh, there's a lot of our uh, religious, I'm going to say memorabilia because it's more than memorabilia, uh, <laughs> religious items uh, that are brought out that go before, you know, we do processions with icons, uh, with banners that have icons on them, obviously with the, uh, the cross. Um, this is all goes to Israel did all sorts of processions with the, um, the contents of the, the tabernacle itself as they go around Jericho. Uh, and so we come to, uh, let's see here, uh, again, the same, uh, the seventh trumpet sounded, the 24 elders, they are before God, and they again fall on their faces and worship God. And then we see after this uh, revelation of kind of the destruction of the city, in verse 19 of chapter 11, it says, The temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there are lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. hail. Great hail. Great hail. <laughs> I remember when I was like 17, I was preaching in this church in Arkansas and 
I could not say, or for whatever reason, it just slipped my mind because I think I knew how to say it correctly, but I kept, instead of saying the heir of, of the father, I kept saying the hair of the father. <laughs> yeah, that's awkward. <laughs> uh, so we have here uh, this fascinating um, temple opening up in heaven and we can see right into where was the Ark of the Covenant typically held once the temple was built? The Holy of Holies. So we've got access. We have sight all the way into the Holy of Holies. And this, of course, anytime there's this kind of drawing near to the presence of God, you get all of these uh, effects going on, the lightnings, the noises, the thunderings. And now we have even hail. Um, this... Uh, is a fascinating, um, how do I want to say this? When the temple and uh, the Ark of the Covenant were consecrated, what happened uh, when it was finally consecrated, when Solomon consecrated it? He prayed to God. He prayed to God. The glory filled the temple. The glory filled the temple. The Holy Spirit fell upon, uh, and there was a, a, a cloud that descended uh, again we go back to Sinai where the, Moses goes up into the cloud um, we have here and this is where I go back to uh, remember so now we see in the text in almost every Bible uh, although there's different versions it says the woman the child and the dragon okay forget about that read verse 19 the temple of god was opened in heaven the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple there was lightnings noises thunderings and earthquake and great hail now a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars then being with child she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth and another sign appeared in heaven behold a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, I'm not going to get into the weeds about trying to interpret 1,000 and all that. I want us to stick with the kind of major uh, images here. Who is this woman? Or what? How, who would you think of interpreting this woman as? The mother of God, the Theotokos. Why? Obviously. Come on. What? She gave birth to the Messiah. She gave he birth to Messiah. Nations. Why do you say he's the Messiah? Is it? Rule all nations with a rod of iron. What is that a reference to? Uh, Psalm 2. Excellent, yes. Uh, the reference there is specifically to Psalm 2, that the child, the king, will come and rule with a rod of iron. That is one of the great uh, psalms, messianic psalms. This is uh, understood, um, and we can see it in the worship of the Orthodox Church. We turn to the saints, but we turn to the mother of God, the woman clothed with the sun, and she gives birth to the king. Uh, and then, uh, as we have this, and the church 
uh, enters into exactly what happens. Uh, war broke out. So don't, again, don't, Satan thrown out of heaven. Don't read that. Uh, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation, strength, and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren. He accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Uh, uh, Satan uh, means the accuser. So if you remember like the book of Job, right? What, what, how does Satan operate there? He's the one who's in the throne room or in the, before God saying like, I know all the stuff that Job uh, hasn't done. Uh, I know all the stuff I'm going to, you know, poke at and, you know, bring out the books, uh, you know, throw the book at him, as they would say in a court, right? Um, if we go down, uh, let's see here. Let's go ahead and open it. There's all this kind of apocalyptic uh, language about the dragon being cast to earth, persecuting the woman who gave birth to the male child. Uh, the woman is given two wings of a great ang uh, eagle that she might fly away. Uh, but then we go down to 17. The dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who kept the commandments of God and had the testimony of Jesus Christ. Why a dragon? Because dragons are cool? Because <laughs> it makes a better story? The dragon and serpent? Why a serpent? The Garden of Eden. What is the, the promise there? Or what is the. Uh, I'll put. Speak up a little bit louder. Sorry. You're um, on Candid Radio. <laughs> I will put enmity between your uh, offspring and his offspring. Uh, and, I, I'm and crush. And crush the head. With the heel, yes. right? So you have here. This fascinating image of a serpent that is going to be crushed by Eve. Of course, the early church, from at least Justin Martyr on, who is interpreted as being the second Eve? The Theotokos, right? She is the one who says yes, the one who uh, uh, becomes the handmaid of the Lord instead of uh, enticing Adam and Adam and her both deciding that they want to become like God. Uh, she allows God to act and move uh, and come into existence through her obedience to God. Um, she is uh, crushing, or and her offspring, uh, they, there's this war that's going to occur. Uh, but I want us to, because there's all these, one of the things about the book of Revelation and all prophetic literature, you kind of get the set images uh, from Genesis, Exodus, the early books, and then later ones will re-stir uh, these images and things around. And we have uh, inherited a lot of these images uh, and a lot of these kind of ways of thinking uh, into the church. So how did the Ark, I want to just talk about the Ark of the Covenant, and then we'll have to end, and I'll pick up a little bit about the Mother of God tomorrow, uh, the next time we have class. But... How did the ark function in the Old Testament? What was in the ark? The law, more specifically, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments on the tablets. A pot of manna. 
pot of mana. I mean, Aaron's rod that budded. And Aaron's rod that budded. The, the ark held within it the word, the budding tree, and it held within it uh, food from heaven, manna from heaven. Uh, have you, any of you been to the Akathist hymn that we sing during Lent to the Theotokos? The Akathist hymn is the great kind of uh, hymn of the Orthodox Church where we go through and we um, basically laud the Theotokos for being the Ark of the Covenant, for being, uh, uh, Gregory Vanessa will interpret her as being like, she, her human nature was such that the, the finger of God wrote upon her the word, like the tablets. Um, she buds forth uh, from the tree of Jesse, uh, the son of God. Uh, she holds within her, because she's the ark, the manna. She holds within her who will be uh, the budding tree, the rod, the cross that will give us salvation. You can ju- and you can just spin this, <laughs> and there's all sorts of, so there's like the akathist, and there's all of these other akathists and out, out there. And if you look through our hymnody, we'll make references all the time and have different titles uh, and names for her. And I want us... Um, the, the whole picture of our veneration for the mother of God, of course, is all pivoting upon, uh, as here even in the book of Revelation, that she is with child who will be the savior and the king, right? We call her the Theotokos because of who she bears. Uh, and this imagery of the Ark of the Covenant is even, um, it's part of the reasoning when you see uh, in a lot of Greek churches and some Russian churches too, uh, the typical icon that you have up in the apps. So basically uh, a kind of, I don't know, how do what you say that, like quarter sphere <laughs> that you have up uh, uh, in most uh, Orthodox churches if you have the ability to build something like that. Um, you will have up there, you'll have the Theotokos. And what does the Theotokos have typically within her? Like right in the center of her. You usually have Christ, a Christ child, right? Usually he's blessing or something. It's not as intimate as the kind of uh, uh, typical on the iconostasis. Uh, and you usually have around them the angels. Because what is on the, the top of the Ark of the Covenant? Two cherubim, right? And they're facing each other. And they have their wings forward. Uh, you then will have uh, angels around the Theotokos. Because within her, she holds the word of God. She holds the manna from heaven. She holds uh, the Savior, the one who is going to bud forth our salvation. She holds within her uh, the Ark of the Covenant. I want to make one, and this is a fascinating, do I have like maybe four more minutes? This is one of the new things to me. Uh, there's some really great work done by um, some Catholic biblical uh, scholars, Brandt, Petrie and also Scott Hahn. Uh, some of Scott Hahn's stuff is, but there's other things that are good, uh, really great stuff. Uh, and there's one thing he does this great parallel, they both do. I don't know who came first. I know Hahn is older than Brandt, but um, there's this great uh, occurrence where David is taking the Ark of the Covenant to actually enshrine it back in the temple um, because it had been put away. Uh, do you all know, ever know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Nope. Besides, besides the Ethiopian thing, let's just like... 
because you can do a two-hour thing on Discovery Channel about that. Yes, the Nazis. Yes, yes. Love it. So there's actually a tradition that Jeremiah hid it uh, until, uh, let's see, this is, it's uh, in 2 Maccabees 2. The place shall remain, this is Jeremiah going up into a mountain and hiding it. The place shall remain unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. And the Lord will disclose these things in the glory of the Lord and the cloud will appear. So it's fascinating because uh, in the encounter in Luke 1 between Elizabeth and Mary, there is fascinating parallels between uh, when the Ark of the Covenant is brought back to the temple and David meets the Ark of the Covenant and the way then that Elizabeth greets Theotokos. They use some of the same vocabulary and some of the same things occur. For example, uh, who jumps for joy when Mary comes close? And what does Elizabeth do? Uh, she, she says, I'm not like... How am I worthy that the mother of my Lord would come to me? How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? And she shouts this out. The same language and same occurrence is what happens when David encounters the Ark of the Covenant as it's being brought back into the temple. Um, there's, there's all of these parallels. That the same that David goes out uh, in Luke one thirty nine. At this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted uh, Elizabeth, you have the same kind of language that David goes off into the hill country and then comes back in order to uh, that he dances uh, before the ark when it comes back into the temple. Um, then you have, uh, let's see here. There's also there's all these fascinating parallels uh, between this account and other. If you would like to read it, I can give it to you because time wise, I'm running out. But suffice to say. The Theotokos and the saints, but especially the Theotokos, is interpreted within this broader um, liturgical, uh, I mean, kind of say, I want to say apocalyptic, in the sense of like what the throne room and the throne scene is. Um, she is the Ark of the Covenant. She is then, as we say, actually, and this is what I was looking for at the very beginning of class, uh, at the Dormition of the Theotokos, we, uh, at the Procumenon, uh, actually, sorry, it is the Alleluia, we say, Arise, O Lord, into thy resting place, thou and the ark of thy holiness. The Lord has sworn to David a sure oath and will not change his mind. And we also, uh, that's in her dormition, her falling asleep and being brought up into heaven by Christ, uh, there's a quote from the Psalms about the ark of the covenant being returned back into the heavens. Uh, and then you have, in the same way, uh, in Proskomidi, um, do you all know what Proskomidi is? It's the preparatory service when uh, the lamb has been cut out, right after the lamb has been cut out and pierced, and then uh, wine and water are put in the chalice. Then you take out a piece for the Theotokos. And on his right side, when we take out the piece of bread, we say, in honor and memory of our most blessed lady Theotokos and ever Virgin Mary, through her prayers, O Lord, accept the sacrifice upon thine altar above the heavens. Then as we're putting it on the patent, we say, The queen stood on thy right side, arrayed in golden robes, all glorious. Which is a quote from the Psalms. 
and actually harkens back to uh, a tradition that I'll talk a little bit about next week, uh, which is about the role of a queen mother that runs throughout all of Israel, that there was um, basically whoever was king had uh, a queen mother who was around who basically made sure things worked out the way that there was, uh, if there was trouble with uh, succession between kings, that she would uh, intervene uh, and make things, sure that things um, basically got handled correctly because she had a special way of having an ear of the king. Uh, so you have the queen mother who is able to get a hold of the king's ear. In a very similar way, the Theotokos, as the mother of our Lord, uh, is able to bring her her prayers for us to him uh, in a, a particular intimacy. Are there any questions or... I just say, what, what is great about the book of Revelation is that it ends uh, in the way that I was talking about the Messianic banquet. The very end of the Revelation is the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will all sit down uh, in the presence of the assembly of the angels uh, and the assembly of the martyrs uh, with his mother, and we will have the great banquet feast uh, that is uh, when God uh, is all and in all. Any questions? Next week, uh, I believe we're going to... I'll talk a little bit more about the Queen Mother and then launch into the Chasagyan and the readings that we have, uh, which we've already seen. The Chasagyan roots back to Isaiah and even here reflected in the book of Revelation. Thank you all for your attention.